four, four through nine, or you can follow along on the screens. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Please remain standing um, as we pray for the message. Heavenly Father, we just once again thank you for your word. We thank you for a country that we can stand in and your word freely. We ask that you would open our hearts and our ears to the message that you have for your congregation here and be with our preacher as he speaks your word into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. you may be seated. So good to be here this morning. God bless you all. So excited about Thanksgiving this week. Um, I want to encourage you all to just use it as an opportunity for ministry. I know we have our traditions um, on Thanksgiving and Christmas, but perhaps think of someone um, that maybe doesn't have a place to go, um, a friend, a coworker, maybe even someone in this church. Just think of them, invite them over, um, be hospitable to them. That's one of the um, great privileges um, and duties that we have as Christians and believers in Jesus Christ. So um, if, if um, you can think about that and, you know, talk to, um, of course, the, wherever it is that you're going, so that you don't surprise people with more guests. But um, it's just really an exciting time to do that. Um, and I would just encourage you to pray about that and do that and, and uh, just invest in people's lives. Consider how you might do that for Christmas, too. Christmas is upon us. The Advent season is upon us. It's going to be starting December 3rd. So we're going to have a special uh, sermon series prepared for Av Advent from December 3rd all the way to Christmas, um, Christmas um, Eve, which is on a Sunday this year. So just be thinking about who you might invite to church. What we're doing this, um, this Christmas season is similar, I guess, to what we were doing last season. Um, that it, it's basically important for us as a local church to think of Christmas time as a, a personal responsibility. I think every, every Sunday this is true, but um, strategically for our church, it's, it's um, in, in to share the gospel with people at our church is what I mean, is um, we really need to, all of us, just kind of be thinking of people to invite, either to Christmas Eve or to an Advent service. Um, and the reason for that is generally, you know, Christmas Eve is a time of the year where people come to church naturally, but they don't usually go to new churches. They usually go to the churches that are, they're familiar with, that their aunts go to, their moms go to. So, so chances are that we're not going to be on their list of, of churches to go to during Christmas. Um, but they will if you invite them. You know, so um, that's why it's, it's more important rather than for us to advertise some special service, for you to advertise it. You know, so just be thinking about and praying about who might need to know more about Jesus this holiday season and invite them with you, bring them to church with you, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, so we open up our text to Philippians chapter 4, and what an exciting 
passage of Scripture it is indeed to, to meditate on and to consider in our own lives as Christians. There's a fine uh, little collection of sermons preached in England in the early part of the 20th century, so the early 1900s, by a guy named John Gwynne Thomas. And he's little known um, to, to most. But what a great little collection of sermons that you can find actually in a little book called Rejoice Always. Rejoice Always. And basically these sermons are his sermon notes on Philippians chapter 4. And it's a whole book, so he went real slow through Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be going through it a little bit quick, more quickly. Uh, J.I. Packer said that his preaching was characterized by one theme in particular, and that is living by the grace of God in Christ. That's what this man, Gwyn, usually talked about in his sermons when he preached. And with that theme came what he called the obligation of joy in Christ. The obligation of joy in Christ. The duty of joy. Now I know often in life, whether you're a Christian or not, you don't think of joy as something that you exercise, something that you do. You think of it as something, a state of being, something that you are. It just kind of washes over you. It's not a task to be performed. But he talks about it as a duty, an obligation for the Christian. That rejoicing in God through Christ is a distinct Christian privilege, duty, and task. He says, Joy is the only rational state of the Christian in view of the truth about his spiritual condition that he has been saved from the miseries of hell for the glory and joy of heaven. He says, for Christians to lack joy is utterly irrational. Isn't that incredible? No, I trip over that statement because I, to be quite frank, lack joy from time to time in my life. At certain times, at certain times I've often lacked joy as a Christian. Sincere Christians often struggle for joy. It seems elusive. I was um, waiting for a table once at the Square Peg in Warren. I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Square Peg in Warren. It's right down the street. Great restaurant. Um, I don't have stock invested there, by the way. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm waiting for this table at the Square Peg, and, and they have this little room in the back where there's this, this ring hanging from a string from the ceiling. I don't know if you've ever seen this at restaurants before. So while they're waiting, they, they, I guess they're, the thought is, let's keep people busy and so that they're not thinking about how long they're waiting. So, um, so you take this ring, right? The, the object of the game is you, you pull the ring back, and on the other end on the wall, there's this, just this hook hang, uh, like screwed into the wall. So you've got to like aim the, the ring and let go, and the thing swings. And you're going to try to like link the ring onto the hook. Does that make sense? Annoying. As, as anything. And the reason it's annoying is because you get so close. Like you think, oh, I got it now. I know where to stand. I know how to hold it, right? Like, so I'm going to do it this time. And then it just, oh, it just bangs into it and knocks off. It's so annoying to do. Um, it's, it's one of those things that just drives you nuts because you get so close so often, but you really just never can really link it up. I don't, I've never done it. I don't, has anyone ever done it? Oh, Carla. Of course Carla's done it. She's got the trick. So only on a real, rare occasion can you really pull it off. It's, it's really a touch of skill and probably mostly luck. And so joy seems to many Christians, I think. Right there, 
We know we've experienced it once or twice in our life, but we never can really grab onto it. It's just out of reach and rarely held onto. And to make matters worse, if that's how you feel at times in the Christian life, we read God's word and it commands us to rejoice. It says rejoice often all throughout scripture, not just in the New Testament, but all over the Old Testament. We read, we read God's word and we find this command to rejoice. It, it often, sometimes in my life, seems a touch insensitive. <laughs> rejoice in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. It even says in Galatians that the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of salvation and the Spirit's filling in your life is joy. And it can leave us bewildered in our faith, wondering what we're doing wrong, or maybe just considering what's wrong with us, what's wrong with me. Pastor Peter Scazzaro is a pastor in Queens, New York, and he's really known for saying that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. He says you cannot be emotionally unhealthy and be spiritually healthy. You cannot be emotionally immature and be spiritually mature. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. He notes that in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the measure of maturity in Christ. Right? We all know that if you're a Christian for any length of time, you've read, no doubt, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle. Love is the, the measure of maturity in Christ. Yet in our relationships... We remain angry and hurt and cold and closed and distant and deceitful and hypersensitive, right? Loveless, joyless. The happiness and the wholeness we see so vividly as the experience of believers in Scripture just seems like a dream for super-Christians. And we thought joy would be automatic when coming to faith in Jesus, And at times, the reason we think this is because that is what it seems like. At times in our experience, it certainly seems the joy of Christ, when maybe when you first came to faith in Jesus, or moments throughout your spiritual life, you just seem to have it washed over you, outside of any intention or decision of your own, right? It just kind of happens. It got put on you. We didn't work for it. God, through Christ, just kind of showed up, and he gave us this joy, that we had never known. But like the tide, it seems to just go back out. So this morning, I want to talk about the glad life. And I love that sermon title. The glad life. Because friends, as, as much as, if you've, as, as Christians, as much as you might have fought for joy in your life, and as difficult of trials you've experienced in your life, as hard as this might be to understand, God has called you to salvation so that you might have a glad life in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're always going to get what you want. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have grief because of loss. But in Christ, God has called us to a glad life. And that just brings me hope, even though I fought for joy so often in my life. It just brings my heart, just thinking about that, gives me a measure of gladness, doesn't it? That I'm not destined to misery because of the circumstances around me. That God has called me to a glad life, a happy life. I know we kind of diss that 
Christians tend to diss that word happy because, oh, it's based on what happens to you. Don't seek for happiness, seek for joy. And I, I don't know all the etymology of all words that have ever existed, but I don't mind the word happiness. I kind of like it. I think God wants me to have a happy life, right? To have a joyful life. Not a temporal gladness or a general, general gladness that's kind of available to anyone based on circumstances, but the glad life, the happy life, the joyful life that is uniquely available to the Christian because of the gospel. A gladness that is the fruit and offspring of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gladness that is the necessary, the necessary consequence of a gospel cherished in your heart. So that means that no matter what you're going through, when you learn the discipline of cherishing the gospel, gladness follows. Happiness follows in spite of your circumstances. That should you not be living in this joy as a Christian, it is unnecessary, it is irrational, and it is antithetical to the life that the gospel provides in Christ. Amen? From our text, we're going to see that the heart that is glad in Christ is an intentional heart, it is a hopeful heart, it is a protected heart, and it is a practiced heart. And I want to unpack those things, explain to you what those things mean. But first, let's look at the intentional heart. The heart that is glad in Christ is intentional. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The first thing that I get from that sentence is that I have to intentionally decide to rejoice. Paul is telling us to rejoice. That sort of means to me that I might not be. I might be forgetting the reasons why I should be. So I need to stop at times in my life and think and intentionally remember what Jesus has done and rejoice as a consequence. You see, what we often do is we meditate on, we think about those bad things that are happening to us, and we verbalize our misery over those circumstances. And friends, I'm not suggesting to you that bad circumstances shouldn't cause you to, to grieve, but what I am suggesting is that to intentionally rejoice in the gospel is to remember the gospel, to remember all that Christ has done for you in spite of the trials of life. So it's a mistake to presume that happiness comes automatically in life. And it's equally a mistake to think that joy comes automatically upon faith in Jesus Christ. It's very easy to make this mistake, to think that coming to faith in Jesus will suddenly and instantly heal all emotional hang-ups and brokenness. What's more true about life in Christ is that the moment of your faith in Jesus, he provides you with the, the raw materials that you need for this glad life. And you have to utilize those materials. You can't sit idly by. That said, I have to habitually and intentionally decide to rejoice. It's not something that happens to me. You see? I have to make a choice to do it. And friends, don't get tied up in theological knots. Some of you might have keen theological minds and praise God for you. But don't get tied up in theological knots here. And what I mean by that is, 
Earlier in Philippians, Paul said, he who began a good work in you, he will complete it to the end. You see how this might get confusing? Well, what is it? As if God is the agent of change and progress in spiritual maturity while we kind of remain passive objects meant to just simply receive the growth and joy he provides, you see? So we, we might get a little tripped up over a verse like that. Yet over and over again comes this command to rejoice. Philippians 3, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Rejoice. Which is it then? Does God's power preserve and advance our growth in Christ? Or do our choices advance our growth in Christ? Yes. They both do. God's power preserves and advances my growth in Christ. He is sovereign over it, yet I still have to make choices. And you say, well, how does that, how does that work? Is it God or is it me? Yes. <laughs> I know that's confusing. I know that's mysterious. But the Bible, that's what the Bible says, and it doesn't really explain that mystery. Okay? So there's a very real possibility of God's people missing out on the experience of a full life made available to them in the gospel. So Christian joy is not automatic. It requires an exercise of the will to seek his kingdom first and his righteousness. So Paul urges the church to remember the reasons why the Christians should be rejoicing in the gospel. The ability to feel joy, express joy, proclaim joy as a Christian comes from a concentrated and intentional focus on what God has done for us. And if you forget about that, your joy will escape you. And we'll get to that more in a moment. The heart that is glad is intentional. Number two, the heart that is glad is hopeful. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice let your gladness be evident to all the Lord is near. Let your, let, I'm sorry, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. When Paul tells us to rejoice, what does he tell us to rejoice in? Oh, come on. Don't be shy. What does he tell us to rejoice in? The Lord rejoice in. In the Lord. Now what does this mean, rejoice in the Lord? Rejoicing needs an object, right? There's just no, unless you're weird, there's no reason why you're suddenly just going to burst into rejoicing. There's going to be a reason. If there's no reason, there's places for people like that. Okay? <laughs> rejoicing needs an object. You won the game. You got the raise. You signed the deal, right? Rejoicing um, that loved, uh, a loved one has returned, a friendship is reconciled, a sickness is here, fill in the blank. You got the job. There are various conditions in life that can either leave us with chronic fear or great joy and rejoicing, right? Situations that happen to us. And friends, it's not as if it's wrong to rejoice in these things or that it's wrong to grieve in a certain event that didn't turn out right. But nowhere in Scripture do we see Paul commanding, or, or anyone commanding for that matter, anyone to rejoice in anything but the Lord. Isn't that interesting? That all throughout the Bible, you're not going to say, you're not going to see rejoice in your crops. Rejoice 
right? And all of the, all throughout Scripture, rejoice in the Lord. Now, what does this mean? Rejoicing comes from some good news or happy condition, right? That's just kind of basic. You know, we get good news and we rejoice. We're happy. What about the Lord should make the Christian this happy? In spite of trials and circumstances around us. Now, I could only explain this by demonstrating what I think are basic human needs. We all have basic human needs, I think. And take, for example, security, the need for security, the need for love, the need for righteousness, or perhaps the need for purpose. Let me explain to you what I mean by these things. Security, if you don't feel safe, you're going to experience a measure of anxiety or fear, right? Just kind of basic safety. Not enough money or there's burglars prowling around the neighborhood. Something like this. You're going to experience a measure of fear. How about love? We have a basic human need for love. If we don't share love, we can experience great loneliness or rejection. Or perhaps have a low self-esteem. Because someone we once loved no longer shares that love with us. And we have a need for love. With that comes a need for approval and acceptance, right? Uh, how about purpose? If you don't feel an important part of something kind of larger than yourself, we're going to have low self-value. What's the point of my life, right? Those questions, identity questions. How about righteousness? If you think, if you observe yourself a failure, moral or otherwise, you're going to feel like a failure, like you've fallen short, that you didn't measure up. So these are basic human needs. We all go through this from time to time. They all serve as anxieties in our life, don't they? Right? <clears throat> we have these basic human needs, and here they are, that, that can create so often such deep and incredible misery in our hearts. When Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord, he's reminding us that it's only in the Lord being, that is being reconciled to God through Christ. That's what he means. Only this can provide any of these needs to us fully and finally. So in the Lord, that means something incredible, and please hear this. In the Lord, you are safe. In the Lord, because of the gospel, you are loved. In the Lord, you are important. In the Lord, you are forgiven and righteous. In spite of your mistakes, in spite of your failures, in spite of the person that left you or the job that you lost, the gospel turns all of those negative verdicts on your life on their ear and says, in Christ, you have all of those things fully and completely and perfectly. And by the way, you have them as a gift of grace. You don't have to dance for it. You don't have to perform for it. They're given to you by virtue of the work of Christ at the cross. And friends, should we end up rejoicing in a job performance or maybe how someone feels about me? I'm going to be on sinking sand. I'm going to rejoice in the fact maybe that I have it, but I'm always going to worry, what if I lose this, though? What if this escapes me? Because we know that that's a possibility. Experiencing those times of loss no doubt should sting, but they should not sink us because they are not the final verdict on our lives. You see? The heart that is glad... The heart that is really glad intentionally rejoices in the Lord who is our provider, who provides all of these needs for us fully in Christ, who is near, who casts 
the final verdict on our lives. And oh, doesn't this require faith? We have to really believe that the Lord can do that. That God can provide these things for us in Christ. That the work of Christ at the cross, the return of Jesus, right? That your names are written in the book of life. Remember that? That's the power for joy because your names are written in the book of life. So what what is that referring to? It's referring to the coming of Christ. The work that Christ accomplished for us assures us that when he comes, we'll approach a friend and not a judge. You see? We'll, We'll approach the bridegroom and not a judge. The work of Christ at the cross, the return of Jesus, is the guarantee to his people that you are safe, that you are loved, that you are included, that you are important, that you are forgiven, and that you are victorious. You win. You've won. You didn't lose. Oh, but I lost. I lost the job. I lost the game. I lost my husband. I lost my wife. You win in Christ. Amen? You win because the thing that you need most is Jesus and you have him assuredly because of the gospel. He's the better husband, the better friend, the better father, the better boss, the better everything. He's everything that you need. And that frees us from being a slave to so many things in life, doesn't it? And it unlocks this gladness that we can experience in Christ. You say, well, I, I, I believe all those things, yet... <laughs> Gladness still somehow eludes me. I believe, Kyle, I'm with you. Like, logically, I'll write, I'll, I'll, I'll sign that creed. I believe that. So what's my problem? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. We, we all share it, by the way. <laughs> Number three, the heart that is glad is prayerfully protected. I think this is one of our answers. The heart that is glad is prayerfully protected, heart and mind. Do not be anxious about anything, and you just notice he says, rejoice always, do not be anxious. So he knows that the Christian, in spite of the gospel, can revert to fear and anxiety, right? So it's there. So if, if you felt this way, as a Christian, you're in good company. <laughs> he, Paul felt this way, these believers felt this way, we all go through this. So there's nothing defunct about your faith, there's nothing weird about you, It just means that you have to exercise the disciplines that Jesus provides to us to unlock the joy available to us, okay? He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, these will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's no secret, I think, that anxiety is a joy killer, right? How many people in this room, if I ask for a show of hands, have ever been just tyrannized by fear, right? <laughs> Get some hands in the back, right? You can't sleep at night. You just are convinced that the bad thing that you think is going to happen is going to happen. You're just convinced of it, and you're so afraid of it, you can't think about anything else. Anxiety is a joy killer. <clears throat> it's almost always... Our anxieties about the future or regrets about the past that leads us to chronic misery. Okay? Anxieties about the future, future <clears throat> or regrets about the past that leads us to chronic misery. Healthy doses, I think, of anxiety and fear are expected and good too, by the way. You know, if a, if a truck almost hits you and your, heart, and your heart starts to pound, 
that's normal. You probably should be a little anxious there, okay? Your kids are, are home, they're not home yet, it's after 10. You should, you should be a little worried. You know, like, not all worry is sinful, not all anxiety is sinful, so please don't take this the wrong way. But these aren't usually soul-crushing. We kind of get past them, we work through them. But rather, it's the heart that's tyrannized by fear. The heart that's tyrannized by regret. That is the problem. And here, by the way, is the provided antidote for small anxieties or large ones. For chronic ones, or what's the opposite of chronic? i got some nurses in here, right? Acute. Right? Here is the antidote, provided antidote, that produces inward peace and joy for the Christian. The Godward protection we find in habitual prayer. Okay? Make these things known to God. Make these things known to God. Friends, why is it so difficult for us as Christians to make things known to God? You say, well, I pray, and I say I pray. Well, but do I? Do I really? I, I, I open up, you know, the, you know the, I prepare our food. Dear God, thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. Do I have a, like a life of prayer there, a concentrated, where, where I have a relationship with God in Christ? where I make my requests known to him, where I stop in my day. And I'm, conf- I'm not trying to be hard on you and, and hit you with a hammer. I, I, I need to wrestle with this too. Where so often, I don't take my anxieties and fears to the Lord. I deal with them. I come up with my own solutions. I sit there and I cower in fear or I start planning. I'll, I'll fix this. But never do I stop and make my requests known to God. And the Bible's solution to chronic anxiety is chronic fear. I mean, it's chronic prayer. Right? The, the life of prayer in every situation. So that is, prayer is a regular and habitual discipline to seek out relationship with Jesus and to make known to him even the most terrifying thoughts of your own mind. We doggedly determine to pursue God in prayer in all matters, small or great. I was once really anxious about losing my wallet, right? That ever happened to any of you? You can't find your wallet, your keys. Small thing, stupid thing, but I was super worked up over it and overwhelmed. And if you got in my way, like at any given moment, my in-laws have probably seen me like this from time to time, I'm just not nice. Like, I can't find it. Have you seen it? And I'm mad at you that you haven't. Like, how come you don't know where it is? Like, what's the matter with you? I'm starting to get mad and angry, anxious, because I can't find my wallet or my keys. And what's, what's going on there? You know, what's connected to this? Something underneath that, right? But more of that in a moment. But yeah, so we, we get these little things, they work us up so incredibly at times. Over sometimes small things. And we forget to sometimes stop and pray. This happened to me once when I was in Baltimore. And my brother-in-law, oh, he said something I wanted to punch him. Because I couldn't find my wallet. It was the same thing. He, he said, have you prayed about it? I'm like, you are so hyper-spiritual. I wanted to smack him. But then like, I'm like, no, I haven't. And I just kind of like, kept looking and kept looking. And, and I stopped and I realized, well, like, wow, like, it's not just to solve the problem, like to find my wallet. It's to, it's to solve the me problem. 
Like there's something wrong with me in that moment. There's something, there's something out of whack in my own holiness and trust in Jesus Christ. So I don't go to prayer just to have my problems fixed. I go to prayer because I need my heart fixed. There's something wrong with me. I'm, maybe it's a security thing. Remember those needs? I can't find my wallet. Maybe someone's buying something on the internet right now, and I'm going to owe $2,000. But my mind goes to these places, right? So really, it's not about a lost wallet. It's about I trust money more than God. You see, and sometimes I need to stop and I need to pray and have that prayer remind me that I need him, not money. Right? So my problem is not that I need to find my wallet. My problem is that I need to worship the right God. You see? The practice of regular thankful prayer in all things provides the believer divinely supplied peace. That's the consequence. It serves, the scriptures say, as a guard around your heart's and minds. Now imagine a treasure surrounded by soldiers. This is the imagery actually in the Greek here. Imagine a treasure surrounded by soldiers or a prisoner or something, guarding something. And these soldiers, the, the, the thing is in the middle, the soldiers are around it and they're all facing out to keep out enemies, villains, from getting whatever it is they're trying to protect. To get to the treasure requ- requires getting through the soldiers. Right? And isn't that amazing? That the peace of God will serve as a surrounding guard to your heart. The peace provided in prayer stands as a supernatural power around your own thinking. And it transcends all understanding. It doesn't it say that in the scriptures too? It transcends understanding. Why does it transcend understanding? Well, to me, because it tells me that it doesn't promise a changed circumstance. In other words, when I go to God in prayer, it doesn't mean that he fixes my problem, but I still get peace. That's why it transcends understanding, because that's not a worldly peace. A worldly peace is my problem's fixed. I lost this job, but I got that one. Right? This girl left me, but this... This other one likes me now, so I'm okay. I'm cool. See, the peace of God doesn't work like that. It says, this person left you, that job was lost, but here's the peace anyway. Because I'm the job you need, right? I'm the affection that you need. I'm the security. That's why you get that peace. It's beyond our understanding. The the hounds of heaven surround your heart in prayer providing supernatural peace. So friends, if you find yourself joyless, could you just take that simple step in life to make your request known to God? What is it you want? Bring it to the Lord who is gentle and patient and kind and will listen to even the deepest griefs and brokenness of your own heart. And watch what he does. Lastly, the heart that is glad is the heart that is practiced. I'm sorry, I'm still sick here. Um, it says in verse 8, <clears throat> Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Concentrate on these things. Dwell 
on these things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from or seen in me, put them into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Emily Dickinson, you guys have heard of Emily Dickinson, famous poet, I believe in the 1800s. She wrote these kind of dark words in one of her poems. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One, not, one need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. See what she's saying? Our own brain is haunted at times. Far safer of a midnight meeting, external ghost, than an interior confronting that wider host. Far safer through an abbey gallop, the stones a chase, than moonless, one's own self-encounter in lonesome place. Our self, behind our self concealed, should startle most. Assassin hid in our apartment, be horrors least. The prudent carries a revolver. <laughs> he bolts the door, overlooking a superior specter more near the heart. See what she's saying? I know sometimes poetry might, might trip you up and it, as it trips me up. She says, one's own self-encounter in lonesome... When you're looking at yourself face to face, she says that's what's scarier than a ghost. <laughs> when, you look, when, you, when you look at yourself in the mirror, the self behind the self. For those of us who affirm faith in Jesus, yet still find that joy escapes us, it is because there is a self behind yourself, concealed. Okay? There are two contending life narratives. That's what I mean by this. The self behind the self. There are two stories in your brain. One that is true and one that is false. Paul says, whatever is true, think about these things. In other words, don't think about things untrue. Don't think about lies. See, that goes back to our first point. You need to be intentional. Don't think about untrue things. Don't think about lies. Think about what is true. Yet in our minds, in the mind of a Christian, there is a true story and there is a false story. And the false story does not go away easily. Now imagine traveling from Warren to Boston, okay, in a quite indirect way. Let me, uh, this is, I want to illustrate for the, this for you so that you understand what I mean. So imagine traveling from Warren to Boston in an indirect way, kind of out of the way, right? But it's, it's really the only way people use. Your neighbors use it. Your parents use it. You were taught to use it. If you want to go to Boston, here's how you get there. Everyone uses this way. And because of it, it's the only way that you know how to use to get to Boston. But then one day, <clears throat> you're told that there's a more direct route. And you say, what is this route you speak of? I've never heard of this other route to get to Boston, right? So what, what are you talking about? And then, then I show you. No one walks this way. No one has ever heard, you've never heard of this before. So you approach this new and more direct road, yet find it's just less familiar. 
right? No one uses it as much, so like it's not as cleared. There's, there's more snow and brush and all these things. So what you do, when you need to get to Boston, you don't take that way, you take the way you're used to, right? And so and this is a good illustration because this happens in life in general. Like when you're driving somewhere, there might be a much, you ever, you ever drive with someone like, I know a better way. There's always someone that knows the better way, the secret route that's two and a half seconds faster, right? Like, I don't, I don't care. I just want to get there. Two and a half seconds doesn't mean anything to me, right? But there's always that person, right? But, but my point in this illustration is just to demonstrate to you that oftentimes we go the route we're familiar with. We go the route that we know. Even if we know there's another one, and even if someone tells us logically that it's better, that it's happier, we still are just going to default to that old way. Another illustration I often use for this is I mow lawns. Did you guys know that on the side? And I have this big, giant lawnmower that I use to mow lawns. In the spring, it's the, the, the ground is thawing. Everything's soft. It's raining, right? So what happens in the spring when you walk in your grass? You kind of sink in a little, right? Makes like some footprints, a little muddy. Well, imagine taking a 500-pound lawnmower with big, fat tires on the back through a, through a lawn on that. It makes these enormous tracks, when I'm mowing, it's sometimes muddy and wet. So what happens over time is if I mow that lawn the same exact way, up and down, up and down, every time I go, that when, the, when it starts to get hotter and it starts to rain less, I'm going to make little valleys, right, that are going to harden in that grass. You see? Now when summer comes, if that's what I've done, it's going to be hard for me to mow the grass any other way now because the mower is just going to want to... Go back into that. That's why you see guys, sometimes they change the way that they're mowing. They're not trying to be clever or creative. They're trying to prevent that. Right? So, because if you don't do that, as much as you try on another day in the summer, your mower is just going to sink back into that. And friends, that's what I'm talking about your stories. You have lies in your brain that have been put there from childhood. They may have been put there by a father or a peer or a mom that you're a slob, that you're lazy, right? If you want to be important in life, make a lot of money. These stories, these values, these things that you think about yourself because of what's been taught to you your whole life. So when something goes wrong, you're not going to process it. Even as a Christian with the gospel, you're going to process it with what you're used to, right? So you, you lost the job. Well, maybe I'm a loser. Maybe my dad was right. You see what I mean? You see why this is important? Because the Christian life has to intentionally craft new valleys so that, the, that the, the new harder way becomes the new default way, the new way of thinking. And that requires work, friends. The main character in Treasure Island was a boy named Jim. You guys ever read Treasure Island? It's a great little book. Um, I, I read it recently, actually. I went through this stage of... I had never really read classics as a child, like the childhood classics. And I was like, I want to read these things because I hear so much about them. But I read Tre Treasure Island recently. And it's about this, this boy named Jim and who's on a ship. And while he's on the ship, he learns of the treachery of the cook. The, the cook Long John Silver is posing. He's a pirate. He's posing as the cook on the ship because he wants to get to Treasure Island for the treasure that him and his pirates buried. And, and Jim learns about this. He finds out these guys are crooks, criminals, murderers. 
So he, he learns about them. On the ship, he hears them over um, talking about a story of a guy named Boone who is stranded on Treasure Island. And the way that they talk about Boone was that he's just kind of like this wild man. Like, so he's a little afraid of Boone, right? Jim is. So that sets up the scene for they arrive at Treasure Island, and Jim seizes the opportunity to escape Long John Silver. He jumps off the boat, and he, and he hoofs it onto the island. But that's when he runs smack into Boone. He says, I saw a figure leap with great rapidity behind the trunk of a pine, this wild man. And the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. I was now, it seemed, cut off upon both sides, right? Long John behind me, Boone in front of me. Behind me, the murderers, and before me, this lurking nondescript. You know what he's saying? I don't know this guy. I don't know what trouble waits for me. Or maybe great pleasure or blessing does. It's just this lurking non... Immediately, I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. And friends, there it is. We prefer the dangers we know. Because we don't oftentimes really believe that in God, in Christ, there is a better way. You see, loneliness seems dangerous to us. So we must be married. But isn't there a better way? Friends, we know it doesn't work either. This old story, this false narrative but we still default to it because the other way just seems less traveled, it's less risky, it's more risky, we're not used to it. And friends, that's exactly what I mean by by two contending life narratives. For the Christian, one is false and one is true, but the false one is so familiar, we're so used to it, we default default back into it like that hardened valley in in the mud. It says things like, you're lovely, if you're lovely to a man. It says things like you only matter if you make right choices and you don't screw things up in marriage or in work. It repeats verdicts from your pasts that your parents have put on you or peers have put on you. You're fat, you're a slob, you lack focus, you lack discipline, whatever. But Paul says, whatever is true, think about those things. And friends, I have had to find myself in life. Sometimes you might think I'm nuts, but I have to stop and say it out loud. What I'm thinking is a lie. Because God says this. God says this about me. I need not fear because my God is good to me. And friends, you know what we need to do at times in life? You need to identify your fears. You need to write them down and you need to go to Scripture and ask what scripture speaks into this, and you need to rehearse it every day. You need to make new valleys with truth. Paul says, whatever is true, think about these things. Work at forming a new and true way, because lies always contend with truth. Because we're more prone to think and process daily with that old false story rather than the new true gospel one. We need to intentionally answer our default thoughts. We need to address Dickinson's self behind the self, 
right? Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Think about the gospel. Psalm chapter 45, we see the psalmist talking to their own soul putting into practice what Paul is telling us to do. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise Him, my Savior and my God. My name is written in the book of life. I am infinitely and eternally loved by my good Father in heaven. The gospel has erased all of my sin, and I am guaranteed security for all of eternity. Why am I downcast, O my soul? You see? You see, friends, whatever is true, dwell on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See? We need not be downcast or disturbed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you lose your job in Christ, you're not a failure. You have a promised victory, you are loved and included. And here is where we practice the mind of Christ. We, know we might neglect it. And we might be prone to go back into that old, hardened, clay valley. But remember, you need not to. Proclaim the gospel. Have Sabbath rest where you get to concentrate on your good God and not your work. Right? Pick the Holy Spirit over a movie. From time to time, shut the TV off and rehearse the promises of God. Feed your soul truth. Don't neglect the gospel and find the glad life. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord. The glad life is intentional, that joy is available, that we can be hopeful because of what you've done for us that we can take our anxieties to you in prayer, that you will protect us. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would practice the truth of your word and your promises. God, help our souls to not be downcast or disturbed. Help us to answer them with truth. God, thank you, Lord, that for the Christian, it is utterly irrational to lack joy. You have provided to us everything that we need to turn our grief on its ear, and to come out rejoicing. And God, if there's anyone in this room this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to their great need for you. Friend, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, for sinners like you, for sinners like me, so that you would not have to be rejected. God, the, the, the Word of God says that our sin, the wages of sin is death, that is separation from God but he provides for sinners reconciliation through Christ. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Be reunited with your good dad. Have all of your sins separated from you as far as the east is from the west and find your purpose. Find the reason why you were born. Trust in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And friend, you will never die. If that's you, would you come to faith in Jesus? Would you just cry out, loud to God in the silence of your own heart that you're trusting in Him? Would you proclaim that to me after service that you've done that so that I can pray with you and rejoice with you?
God, we come to you um, in repentance, confessing, Lord, how often we believe the old story. God, thank you for the new one. Thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.